I'm looking at a beautiful aerial photograph of a landscape that appears to be half natural forest and half man-made farmland. If you look at the screen of the device you're playing this podcast on, you can actually see this photo in the cover art of this episode. Taken from high above, this image is full of green trees and abstract brown swirls. It's a striking work of art. And yet, there's something disturbing amidst all its beauty. The clear divide of land that juxtaposes a healthy, robust forest ecosystem with the dry earth stripped bare by industrial farming. A haunting warning of what comes to pass as we destroy and reshape the natural world to our human needs. This is a snapshot of a palm oil plantation in the Malaysian part of Borneo, the third largest island in the world and the largest in Asia. The forests of Borneo are some of the most biodiverse habitats in the world, home to ancient trees, wild mangoes, kola nuts, orangutans, elephants, and leopards. But it's also home to the two largest palm oil suppliers in the world, which have been responsible for at least 39% of forest loss to this island by deforestation with 66 million tons of palm oil produced and consumed per year globally. Palm oil is arguably the most important tropical vegetable oil. The beautiful and chilling photograph you see was taken in 2016 by the celebrated photographer Edward Bertinsky. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razbetayev your host for Founding Conversation, a new podcast brought to you by the PICTA Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. In today's episode, we explore the relationship between photography and sustainability with Canadian photographer Edward Bertinsky, who has dedicated his life to documenting the impact of economies on the environment. We will also be examining the role that the corporate world plays in addressing these issues with Bigdad's senior managing partner, Reno De Planta, who's also a photographer and whose passion for this medium led to the founding of the Pripikte, the leading award on photography and sustainability, over a decade ago. Moderating the discussion is Isabel von Ribbentrop, global head of branding, advertising, and sponsoring at the Bigdad Group, and executive director of the Pripikte. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Isabel Ribbentrop. I'm moderating the conversation in which we will explore the work of Edward Potinsky. Ed's remarkable photographs of global industrial landscapes are included in the collections of over 60 major museums around the world, including the MoMA and Guggenheim in New York, the Reina Sofia in Madrid, and the Tate Modern in London. Ed holds eight honorary doctorate degrees, besides winning many other distinctive awards. But not only that, he's also been shortlisted three times for the Pre-Pictee. We will further examine the role that the corporate world plays in addressing these issues with Pictee's senior partner, Renaud de Planta. Renaud, could you let us know how you and Ed have met? First, I discovered Ed's work in a photography magazine about probably 15 years ago. It was a report on the nickel tailings series of pictures taken in Ontario. And that really struck me and inspired me. And actually, I thought, wow, we should encourage this sort of photography. And that gave me actually the idea of launching the Pripikte, which then, you know, Stephen Barber uh, launched so successfully. And um, 
so that's how actually I, I virtually met Ed, and then we finally met face to face at the Paris launch of the Prepicter. I think about 12 years ago at the Palais de Tokyo, and then had the opportunity to see Ed a few times at exhibitions in London. And um, so I have one frustration is that um, I have a lot of respect for the jury of the Prepicter, but I think they should have given him at least three times uh, the Prepicter. But uh, here we are. Otherwise, I think they do a fine job. But I think Ed has really created almost a new discipline in itself, which is photography of uh, sustainability issues. Our latest advert in the PICTE corporate campaign has the title Responsible Economics. The opposite is no longer viable. Ed, could you describe that image to us and um, also describe why and how you took it, actually? Um, it's great to be here, and uh, thank you, Renaud, and, and thank you, for Isabel, for your introduction. Uh, that image, in many ways, represented what I believe is one of the uh, most impactful things that we as human, humans do to the landscape, which is agriculture. And if you look at palm plantations, palm can only grow in very select latitudes, pretty much one latitude north and south of the equator, where you have tropical rains, and that is the ideal uh, place in which palm can be grown. And what you see in that image is a uh, tropical forest that's never been cut, so it's, it's never been uh, forested in the past. And that diversity is now being pushed back for a very kind of austere monoculture, which is palm. And when you do this to a jungle, um, and that's how most of the jungles in the tropics are being lost, to palm, and we see it in everything, palm oil, palm sugar, palm, you know, you go to the, to the grocery store and a palm exists everywhere. And so our insatiable need for that product is uh, forcing a lot of loss of diversity. And to me, the work that I've done in the last 40 years is trying to look at the human footprint on the planet. And agriculture, uh, by far, is one of the most significant that we do as a species. Why does this image align with your vision for PICT and what actually drew you to choose this particular image um, for our advertisement? I think it aligns because we want to make and we are making responsibility one of our top strategic priority for the upcoming five years. And environmental sustainability is one of our key guiding principles for the years to come. Now, for this photography in particular, I think three things come to mind. First, you have this aerial shooting, which gives you, I think, the necessary distance to grasp the scale of the environmental degradation. I think we always need a bit of distance. Um, and aerial shooting, even though I'm aware that it's a controversial issue uh, in the uh, environmental world, but uh, it gives you this distance. So that picture gives us uh, a sense of the scale of the impact of uh, men on the environment. The second is the contrast, which Ed was alluding to, the contrast between the the loss of biodiversity, uh, the release of carbon, the upcoming drought. You almost see it on the left side of the picture, and then on the right side you see the, the beautiful self-regenerating sustainable uh, environment. So in a way that picture captures everything. And then the third is that that picture is also thought-provoking because you see a clear line of you know, a border, a sort of frontier between um, 
this unsustainable and the sustainable, and it divides the world a little bit in two camps. And in that sense, maybe it makes us a little bit uncomfortable because it's leading us to thinking about making choices, about choosing our camp. And um, I think in that sense, this photography confronts us, I think, with our own contradictions, with our own lifestyle decisions, and the need for urgent action. So I think that picture really sums it up. You know, in one picture, you know, uh, you have a lot of emotions and information. And I think we need both. I hand over to you because I'm sure you have uh, some questions for Ed himself. So I'll directly hand over to you, Renault. Maybe one of the questions I would like to ask you is uh, why actually you have uh, moved into this direction? Why is this photography of uh, sustainable issue, man-made, you know, industrial landscapes, manufactured landscape versus, you know, the natural order. Why has this subject so attracted you and, and you know, what led you to, to this, actually? The real key uh, to understanding uh, my interest in going to look at um, large-scale human systems uh, on the planet comes out of a very uh, deep uh, regard for this place that we have called nature. And it's interesting that we often think that nature is outside of ourselves, but in my mind, we are part of nature. We have, through consciousness, have separated ourselves and seen that as the other. But to me, that's one of the greatest dangers is understanding nature as the other, not that we are part of nature. And it was out of that kind of love of being there. And I live in Canada. And for those of you who've been here, you, you, you understand that when you go north of our, you know, of the 49th parallel, I mean, most of the population of Canada exists within 100 kilometers of the American border. I think almost 85, 90% of us live within that strip along the American border. But Canada is really a, a country of vast, vast uh, natural resources and forests. And it doesn't take very long to find yourself in a place in Canada where that is what nature intended. That is what the planet meant for that place in the world. And when you look at that place, you really understand, you really get a glimpse into geological time. This is the enduring things that nature, that th this was here before we arrived, and this will be here if we leave it'll still be enduring. And so for me to understand that, the, the, how we change that and how we push back at that diversity is really a, a, a lament, a, a loss of something, that diversity to our kind of uh, need for uh, crops, need for agriculture, need for calorie security. And we take biodiversity and reduce it down to um, uh, a very monoculture, uh, you know, a monoculture, and our, you know, urban systems and industrial systems also deplete diversity. So, in many ways, you know, I wanted to show the kind of human habitation and how it, it plays interference with nature. So, it, over the 40 years of working, I would say that the work really stands as a lament for a loss of, of diversity to our success. A deep, rocky hole in the ground. The photograph shows the jagged edges of a quarry in Portugal, a man-made pit that has been cut out of natural stone to excavate rock, sand, gravel, or slate from the ground. Its inverted, cube-like architecture and repetitive lines play with our perception, so who knows how deep the bottom lies. But it is at the bottom that we see a cross-shaped hole, 
which was most likely produced by accident, filled with what appears to be blue water. The image is imposing and beautiful, but just like that of the palm oil plantation, it is disturbing. Edward's photograph, Iberia Quarries Number Eight, comments on the transformed landscape created by our pursuit of raw materials. Open pit mines like this one, funneling down like inverted pyramids, which we take for granted, sustain our lifestyles. You can find this image on foundingconversation.bigte. It may not be the most beautiful、uh, picture you've taken, but I think that's the one actually which was in the photography magazine, and it had a huge impact on I think on many readers. And actually, if one follows your work over the years, you have always spotted mo- most incredible sites and situations. And I sometimes wonder how did you choose your photography, your your field of action. You know, I remember. You know, you you had the series on quarries, on mining, on China, on ship breaking, so many fabulous、uh, topics, which are, I mean, which you capture so wonderfully. What what what's your process to actually decide? Now I'm going to embark on this long trip to the other end of the world, and can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, in many ways,、uh, I worked in a mine when I was putting myself through photography school, so I. Had the opportunity to see underground and also to see large open pit mines. Also, as、uh, growing up, I, I grew up in、uh, a town called St. Catharines, which is near Niagara Falls, and、uh, there I had a chance to not only see, as a very young boy at seven, the、uh, what's on the other side of the wall where my father worked, where engines were being made and, and cars were being assembled. Um, or parts of cars were being made as well.、Uh, I, I all of a sudden understood this other world that had to exist for my world to be what it is, and it was really through that exposure. And then the, the Welland Canal also went through St. Catharines. And as a kid, I would bike everywhere. It was back in the days where, you know, as an eight-year-old, I can just bike wherever I wanted, and parents weren't as、uh, concerned about where you went. And I would go alongside these ships, and 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 I, was, I remember being kind of mesmerized by the scale of things. So, in my life, I've had a chance to engage with large-scale industry and to see it firsthand. And so, that's really the the kind of、um, uh, reason why I started to think, well, there may be a photographic process here. And the question you ask is really interesting. Well, how do I get to those specific places? So. In my research,、um, if I say I want to do a quarry or I want to do a mine, rather than just randomly, like if I looked at iron ore mines, there's probably tens of thousands of them around the world. But I start looking for which ones have been around for the longest and which ones are some of the largest、uh, in the world. And in that largeness, there is surreal that starts to happen, where the, the the landscape is transformed on such a level that、um, it's hard to comprehend visually. How that came to be. So, for me, that was the the real key thing: is to go from an idea, which you know, quarries quarries was an idea. I'd never seen them before, but I thought, wow, if I could find them, they would be like inverted architecture. They would be like the relief of looking down into architecture. So that was the idea, and then I went to research it, and I, and I went to you know, quarry 
conventions and, and then look, went into find quarry magazines where they bought equipment for the industry and then found out and asked them, where are the big quarries in the world? And I found Vermont had some huge quarries in Vermont and New Hampshire. And then there were other massive ones in Karara. So in 1993, I then ventured for the first time off uh, North America and uh, flew to Karara, uh, found an interpreter and a fixer who could help me get into those quarries and I photographed the quarries in Kareta. Then I went on for almost 16 years to photograph quarries in eight different countries and created a book based on quarries. When you choose a topic like quarries, uh, how do you decide about, you know, how to best illustrate the topic and also the underlying theme, which is the man-made impact on nature? I, I remember reading your point about these inverted buildings or inverted skyscrapers. I think somewhere you wrote, as humankind, we have kept taking from the planet all the time. I think quarries are a very good example. But what are the steps you take to actually come up with these wonderful images? Well, it, it, it's interesting that, I mean, even the photograph that you just showed looking down, um, it's, it's a picture that I did with a large format camera. So it's 4x5 and 8x10 cameras. So that's um, the images I take are meant to be seen, you know, at, like behind you as a large image because the detail is so intense uh, through this large format color work that you can kind of go very close to the image and be able to inspect it at a, at a close distance. So then small buildings or people in the picture become significant. In that image that you just showed the quarries, I, I couldn't actually look behind the camera. I was on a platform and I had to push my camera out and kind of hold it down so I had my assistant sitting on the tripod and I was operating it um, remotely and basically with using a Polaroid Type 55 because it wasn't digital at the time. And every Polaroid I would say, okay, I got to adjust it this way and that way until I got the composition and then I was able to take the picture. So many pictures take different ways to get to them. And today I'd use drones with my uh, high-end cameras on the drones and I can control them very, very carefully and be able to have them stationed in space and shooting them with the sharpness as if the camera was sitting on a tripod. But, you know, going back, to, it's, it's the, you know, to, to, to me, that, that, that first idea of quarries was, you know, if you look at towers, I, was, I think I said there must be a yin to the yang. There must be an equivalence to these, you know, uh, I remember standing in Toronto and amongst the, uh, you know, uh, IMP and, and, uh, you know, the Mies buildings, the Mies towers, and looking at them and thinking and being overwhelmed by them, like the, like the scale of what we as humans can kind of achieve in terms of architecture and building and, you know, whether it's bridges and, and dams. And I thought there must be something of that scale that can speak to that other side of, of our urban metropolitan cities, of the places where the voids exist, and I wanted to photograph those voids to kind of fulfill and, and connect us to them because I think we call them wastelands, but they're not wastelands. They are still part of our planet. They are temporarily disabled. You know, they may these quarries may fill with water, and then you know, uh, fish will come into that, and ducks will start to you know have their families around the edges of it. It'll it'll come back, but we kind of. Uh, leave after we've taken, we leave it as, uh, as, as a kind of the end of the world, but it is still part of us, it's still part of our planet. The next photograph we discuss shows a winding river 
that from a distance looks like an enormous pine tree with brown branches splitting out from its thick green trunk. The texture and colors of this dying river are arresting against the cloud-like white background that surrounds it, a testament to the desert where it rests. This image, titled Near San Felipe Baja Mexico, depicts the desertification of the once vital Colorado River Delta in Mexico, exploring how landscapes are naturally and unnaturally reshaped by the absence and presence of water. You can find this image on foundingconversation.picte. Maybe we can move to the next picture because not all your pictures are about man-made landscapes or industrial or manufactured landscapes. Some of them have a, a great message of hope, you know, about the beauty of the creation. And maybe do you want to comment this one and, and uh, tell us where you took it and what's the message? Well, this is uh, the delta in the Colorado River, and uh, although I'd like to um, agree with you that this is an image of hope, it actually uh, is actually more of an image of distress in that what the Colorado um, Delta today is, is a large, vast desert. And the water from the Colorado River has, has not made it to the ocean now for over 40 years. So 90% of the water is removed before it hits the Mexican border. And then at the Mexican border, the last 10% is used for agriculture. And what's happened is that that kind of biodiversity of that um, uh, delta, which is one of the largest deltas, think of the Grand Canyon. And if you've been there to see that size of that void, well, all of that is silt. All of that is, uh, you know, the erosion of water um, against that sandstone, that soft stone that has been deposited somewhere. Well, that is the Colorado River Delta. And what you see here is the, the red on the edges is also uh, the color below the salt. So when the ocean tides come up and down on the delta, on the return of the tides, you end up getting uh, in the dips on the delta, where the delta dips down a bit lower, you get the water rushing uh, back into the sea, creating these kind of tree formations. So this is really kind of almost like nature laughing back at us saying no matter how you try to shape us to me it was the nature will still create its own pattern it'll still you know reach to its these fractals in life that those things remind me of trees which remind me of our veins which remind me of our nervous systems and our neural nets in our own bodies so I, I keep often saying that you know our bodies are are an extension of the natural world but we we need to see it under understand it that these things and, and water shapes us in ways that is constant through nature. So if we're if we care to look at it, we can see the connections. Yeah, fascinating. The beautiful series. You also have a beautiful series on Iceland, which is stunning, and that's hopefully not an area of distress, but uh, of no, that is actually that is that is actually the beautiful that, that there are places in the world where. You can go to the water and dip your cup and drink it straight from the river because it's coming from the glaciers. And so we have uh, still a, a good amount of, of untouched and unspoiled nature, uh, but it's up to us as the managers of the planet to be custodians of that which is still remaining. And, and Iceland was one of those 
places that I went to where, where you could still look at nature in its purest form. Uh, that brings me to, uh, because you've mentioned some uh, keywords now, manager and responsible. Do you have any questions for Renault um, in that sense as well? The question I have is, you know, ha having gone to many, many corporations, big, big companies, and, and, and gone into these mines and got into, you know, factories, etc., what do you feel can be done uh, by corporations? And in particular, like, if the governments do not set regulations and level a playing field, do you think it's possible for corporations to break out from their pack and possibly deliver slightly less, you know, uh, profitability uh, to also, but at the same time, be doing the right thing. Is that, do you think, palatable today in, in, in the world of competition? And, and if governments don't set a level playing field, how, how do those corporations go outside of that and still be competitive? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a crucial question. I think that... Um my first reaction would be that it's easier for a privately held company to act more responsibly because we, we're not under the short-term pressure of outside shareholders, outside you know, equity analysts who would put pressure on short-term profitability. So private companies have been generally more pioneers towards sustainability. Uh, but even for listed companies, I think that, you know, you see examples of companies behaving more responsibly. And we as investment managers, we have a, a fiduciary duty to steer companies in the right direction. You know, we have some power actually, you know, means because we vote at the general shareholder meeting, we can engage with the executives, we can put pressure, encourage them to, uh, act more responsibly, whether they are in the energy sector, in, in fact, in any sector, uh, you can, you know, even financial services, you know, banks can behave more responsibly. So we do have a few uh, levers, and uh, I think that increasingly the market starts to price. I mean, the stock market starts to make a difference between companies which are taking undue environmental risk just remember what happened to BP, you know, before their oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. I think you had a wonderful series of pictures also on, on that oil spill. But, you know, the company came under huge pressure, the stock price under huge pressures, because they hadn't taken the, the necessary environmental uh, protection measures. And, and there are many similar cases. Think of Volkswagen and, the, you know, the cheating on diesel fuel. And, and the list is long. So I think that increasingly, financial markets start to discriminate and it's our role to put pressure to accelerate the process towards a more responsible economy but it's a long process and it's a it's it's a lot of hard work but we're very committed to do it mm. to summarize i would say we can deprive the most polluters of the environment of capital and we can steer capital towards solution providers towards companies which behave better, which provide solutions, whether they are, you know, small companies in the field of water filtration, of energy efficiency. Technology can also provide a lot of solutions. And uh, I think it's our job to, to steer capital, uh, the savings, you know, of our clients towards those companies and to deprive uh, the big offenders from capital. And as they're Funding costs keep increasing because they've 
face a higher and higher struggle to source capital, their costs will go up, they will become less competitive, and you know, gradually things will go in the right direction. But as I said, it's, it's a marathon, and many of us need to, to pull in the same direction. And I, I hope that you know, that pressure will become ever more material. And I believe that it's, uh, governments have a very, very significant and profound role. I often say you can really simplify where governments can be of greatest power. Uh, and what you do as a government is you tax the behavior you don't want to occur, and you incentivize the behavior that you want. And they can do it at scale by regulation and by carbon taxes or by incentives to insulate your home, incentives to buy electric car, incentives to have companies move away from coal to more sustainable, you know, wind, solar, uh, geothermal. So there's many, many places where, you know, on scale, you're using economy and you're using the power of, uh, of the dollar to, to shape. And, and then I think you get really rapid transitions into new technologies. And one final question from my side. If we're looking ahead now to the future or forward, um, that's for both of you. How hopeful are you that humanity can transition to more responsibility? And, and are you already seeing any positive examples of doing that um, that you can specifically mention? Uh, sure, I'll, I'll start. I mean, I do actually think uh, that um, when I look at the next generation, the millennial generation, they really do seem to have shifted away from a culture of consumption to some degree uh, and and they're moving more towards a, a, a culture of experience and a culture of a, a more healthy kind of uh, living, you know, where um, they're balancing their their life and their work. And and I think my generation just worked too much. We were just like constantly, you know, uh, on the treadmill. And maybe there is this kind of moment where you know life, um, you know, and, and family and uh, and a better lifestyle is something that is pursued because I do believe that that our consumer culture and how we consume and what we consume can make a huge difference in terms of um, the health of the planet. I'm hopeful that we will transition, uh, but I think we have to transition fast. Um, so we need to act before it could be too late or too ir irreversible in some ways. And for that, I think awareness is key awareness of the broad public of the consumers and the corporate executives in that sense i think that uh, there's not just the intellectual dimension the thick expert reports but there's also the emotional uh, dimension and i think that's where art makes a big difference that's where the pre can make a big difference and that's where great photographers like ed can have a big impact so i think uh, you know we need to support these efforts because then we have reasons to be hopeful. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Edward Bertinsky, Renaud de Planta, and Isabel von Ribbentrop. If you want to find out more about the Prix Pictet, the leading award on photography and sustainability, do listen to our other podcast, Bripikte, a lens on sustainability, or visit bripikte.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook under at bripikte. This series is brought to you by the Pikte Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy. 
London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrijadas Betayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.